you know, traditionally, um, the barramundi would reproduce at the mouth of our estuaries. Instead of that happening at the mouth of the creek, now that's happening 60, 80 kilometers out to the reef. So, you know, that's when I say slow the flow, give back the barahamojo, sort of build in contours on the land. You plant those with native species that, you know, koalas and that can use as habitat. Dams will be part of the solution. The issue that I have is no dam that is currently in existence is what we're thinking about. If you, the water is healthy, the country is healthy. If the country is healthy, the people and culture will be healthy. Welcome to Impact, a Sikh University podcast where our experts unpack their latest research in easy to understand language. We discover how these researchers are creating solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Subscribe now to Sikh University podcasts so you don't miss an episode and join the conversation on Sikh University's social media. As Australia heads into a La Nina weather event with high expectations of rain on the horizon, it's a reminder about how our country is affected by cyclic weather patterns. Australia has quite literally been shaped by the cycle of flood, good times, drought, fire, then flood again. While there's evidence these patterns have existed for thousands of years, we can't ignore the impact that European settlement and urbanisation has had on our lands and waterways too. I'm Priscilla Crichton from CQ University's Corporate Communications team, and today I'm chatting with water expert Dr Adam Rose, who believes one of the country's biggest climate and environmental concerns could be solved by directing our attention to the water cycle. Adam has been studying floods in central Queensland for over a decade and believes one of our biggest problems is the speed that water flows down our waterways. He has since coined the phrase, slow the flow, and hopes water management authorities will consider the benefits slowing the flow could have on our environment. So glad to have you here today, Adam. It's a great topic and it's very timely. Hey, it's good to be here. And yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Yvonne McDonald with us too. Yvonne is a traditional custodian who has been helping Adam with a very special project, which is a byproduct of his research. We'll be finding out a little bit more about that soon, but welcome to our podcast today, Yvonne. Thank you. It's good to be here. Before we get into slowing the flow, Adam, can you tell me about how you actually got into researching water in the first place? Okay, so that's a very interesting story, and, and I suppose Central Queensland Uni's played a fairly big role in it. So I'll take you back. So I grew up in Gladstone, um, you know, your typical uh, little boy just running around the bush and the beach and the creeks and the rivers. Um, but then at some stage, I was probably about 12, and next door we had a professional fisherman move in. Uh, his family was living with him as well, they were farmers. So um, Viv next door was our uh, boat driver for the university, the research team. So from about 13, I was out collecting data with the researchers that we had in Gladstone. And on the school holidays, to get me away from screens, my parents sent me out to Charleville, where I'd uh, jackaroo on a, it was a sheep station, but but we've turned it into a cattle station now. You know, it was a bit of a, um, bit of a journey, I suppose, looking looking at growing up around fishing, around farming. Um, and, you know, as a teenage boy, I thought, you know, come to uni, I'll do engineering. So I came to CQU, did that for a couple of years, but I sat behind a computer and it was, 
you know, my my wife, my wife now, who was my girlfriend at the time, was in Gladstone, so I was away in Rocky. So I moved back to Gladstone, and to keep mum and dad happy, I took up business at CQU. I was doing accounting. Did that for two years. I couldn't see you as an accountant. Well, it took me two years to figure that out, you know. Um, but so I suppose then I, I, I just got a, a job at the at the pub in Gladstone and took what a you know a gap year four years after finishing high school, and I'd wake up every morning and think, you know, what do I want to do? And you know, I sort of went back to all of the cool times I had in the boat doing the research um, when I was younger. So I thought, all right, well, environmental science, the uni was offering it, and um, I suppose that's what got me into it. And then I, I suppose I wanted to be a, a park ranger. But then when I got here, I had, you know, like uh, Professor Laurel Fabro, Dr. Leo Duvenborden, uh, Kerry Walsh, all of these guys, they sort of encouraged me to keep going. And so then, you know, I started an honours project on, on Barramundi. Um, the day before I went out into the field, we got a huge rain event and it flooded that system so I couldn't catch any barramundi. So I had to change. So then I did the um, Lake Awonga, the ecology of the barramundi there. Um, and again, halfway through that project, we had a massive flood. So it completely changed um, what I was looking at. And I suppose without that first experience with the barramundi being flooded out, I might have wanted to, to, to quit. But... You know, my Leo Duvenborden, you know, Adam, no, this is cool. You, you get to now look at how floods affect our ecosystems. So no, that was cool. And then I started PhD on Baffle Creek. Three months into it, what do you know? We get another flood. So every time I seem to go out and study, we get we get floods. So we, we joke that they should send me to Africa and bring some rain or something <laughs> over there. So I think one doesn't get into floods intentionally. It was more a case of that. That's what Australia threw up at me at the time, and, and that's what I've got to got to do now. I suppose it's so. Yeah, I, I was wanting to look at drought, but I just you know you talked about the cyclic nature of it. Um, I remember 1991, the Fitzroy flooding. We were bringing a priest up from Gladstone and drove him up, and he had to get on the boat and get the boat from the Mount Markham turnoff to Rockhampton and. Then we're in drought again, and then I remember in 2000, 10 years later, we get more floods, and I was doing my undergrad in the middle, so again, we were going through drought, and so then I started at 2009-10, again, we get floods, and where are we now, 2020, and the floods are coming again. That's amazing. You know, um, you know while we're talking about the cyclic weather patterns, how do we know that it, it, it is the case? What's the sort of the background um, to that, that shows this has been happening for a long time. What I do as an ecologist, I look at the plants and animals and they give us an indication of how the environment um, is, the health of the environment. So a great example to show that Australia drought isn't new to Australia is if you, if you think about all of the animals around the world, um, there's, a, there's a biological, um, when, when we get into dry times here in Australia, we, the animals have what we call embryonic diapause, like the kangaroos can pause their pregnancy um, if conditions, if we don't have water, if they don't have food. And if you look around the world, very few animals have had this adaptation. So rodents, I think beavers, some bears, but most of our marsupials do. So to me, if our animals have evolved this adaptation to drought 
and, and bad times, you don't just make that adaption if you're not adapting for a reason. So, you know, I want to look at the animals and they tell us a very clear story that we've had plenty of droughts here before. When we look at the fire part of the cycle, go and look at our plants. Half of them need fire to reproduce. Some of them don't need the fire, they need the smoke and the water in the fire to reproduce. So if we've got all these trees that need fire to reproduce, maybe it's been a really common part of our you know, existence here on the continent. So um, it, it's, it's good being able to not look at what I think. Basically, our job as ecologists is to go out into the environment, look at the plants and the animals and figure out what are they telling us. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk in, in recent years about how we can control these extreme weather events um, that Australia has had. You know, you know, we've had pretty big, I suppose, disasters in recent years. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, if you, if you look at some of the traditional stories, you hear of uh, like overnight oceans out west. And, you know, we used to think that was sort of an allegory. But then you look at Townsville last year and you go, oh, okay. No, so this actually happens. And while we may think that our weather events here in central Queensland are getting more extreme, when you, when you look at the literature, it shows that we probably had our most severe cyclones in the between the 1930s and the 1950s in central Queensland. Um, but what's happening now, because we've changed our environment so much, when we do get floods and whatnot, it behaves differently to what it did before we, I suppose, came here and tried to farm Australia like Europeans. Mm. So I, I guess, I mean, I know you're a big advocate that we should be looking at the water cycle to help fix a lot of our issues. Well, why, why is that the case and how can that happen? Well, let's, let's step back for a bit and think, you know, Elon Musk, is he, when he's looking throughout the cosmos, what are they looking for for us to find, you know, a, 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 new, a new planet if we, you know, if we're going to use it? And what do we look for? Water. You know, there's three main ingredients to life on, on Earth here, carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. Um, so, you know, all of these cycles, they all play together. But the water cycle, it's sort of like the conductor. Um, and it, 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 it tells the nitrogen cycle how to work and, and the carbon cycle how to work. So, you know, everyone around the world now, everyone knows the carbon cycle. But it's like, guys, we need to get onto the water cycle because, you know, he's, she, he, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it a gender, but it's the boss. It's the, it's the big one, the water cycle. Yeah. Yep. I know, I mean, I've lived in Rockhampton all my life and I've lived in a flood area. Um, I was back in a flood area in 91 when we had the big one yep, back then. Yep. So I know how fast that water goes mm -hmm. down that system. I, I'm i astounded at the numbers. I know there's a, there's a stat that you can probably pull out about how much water goes down the Fitzroy in a flood event like that. So, well, in a typical year, you'll get about 12 Sydney harbours discharge. In 2011, we had 7,600 Sydney harbours of water and sediment go to the Southern Great Barrier Reef. Now, traditionally, before uh, we started farming like Europeans and cleared all of the land, when it rained, that water would penetrate into the environment and it would filter through the soils. It would go down the, the tree roots, uh, infiltrate down into that soil profile filter through that soil into our creeks 
and then the creeks would slowly move down and um, yeah we had some some floods but different to now so when it flooded before the floods they lasted longer because the water wasn't moving as fast so the water sometimes um, stuck around for a little bit longer but but now when it rains um, we've changed all of that and so like I said 7,600 Sydney harbors um, and the reef evolved in an extremely low nutrient environment so for that water to be going out of the catchment to there it's you know it's it, it the fresh water is pollution um, and and that water because it's traveling so fast I think on an average year we get about a billion kilograms of soil removed from just the Fitzroy and I think I've told you before Priscilla that if you want a picture that that's like 10,000 trucks lined up from Mackay to Brisbane full of full of soil and that's coming out of just the Fitzroy yeah that's got to be doing some harm well we we do need some sediment mm -hmm. um, you know and I think you've had uh, Dr. Jackson on with the seagrass and whatnot and so you know the, the kidneys out, out at the mouth of these systems but what's happening now is we're just inundating these areas with too much sediment and it, it, it buries some of those. And when, when that happens, then, you know, you're losing habitat for your small fish and it, it's all connected. That's why, you know, waters that for me, this is why the water is the important story, because it connects a lot of what we do at the university. It, it connects our farms, our drinking water supplies and our coastal marine stuff. <laughs> How do you think urbanisation over the years has actually affected the impact of flooding? So regionally, not as much as obviously the city. So if you go down and look at Parramatta, for instance, like the urbanisation down there is, is really impacted what's going on there. But when we come up here, it's not necessarily the urbanisation of Rocky that's caused the problem. It's the clearing of the upper catchment that allows all of that water instead of like we talked about that natural you know soaking into the soils and slowly coming down that system it now sort of rushes down and um that's where our issues are caused and you know some of the um sections of rockhampton do flood and i think they the councils just said that they're not going to worry about the the levy anymore and you know maybe that's a good idea we, we need to start to think instead of worrying about the floodwaters right where we are in Rockhampton, we need to start worrying about those floodwaters up in the headwaters of the system. So up in Moorambar and, and Mount Larkham and up in those places. So I guess this is where your um, slow the flow um, analogy comes from. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, I suppose um, while I was doing my PhD on Baffle Creek and we had the giant flood, a lot of the um, a lot of nasties arose after the flood. So when it flooded, it, it damages that that water infrastructure. So it allows toxic algae and and things to enter our drinking water supplies. So then, because when I started, I thought I wanted to, you know, we we want to get rid of everything and just leave the rivers alone. But Baffle Creek's a natural system, so that's why I did my PhD on it because I I got to study. Just for our listeners, can yeah. you explain where Baffle Creek so Baffle, is? Baffle Creek is probably five hours north of Brisbane. Um, it's just north of Bundaberg, south of Gladstone. It's on Miriam Vale, um, 1770 sort of catchment there. Um, it yeah, it doesn't have any 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 dams or weirs, so it, it's 
for me, it was the most natural system I could study um, in this region. And when I started, I thought, you know, we need to make all the catchments like Baffle. But as I'm going now, you realize even in Baffle, when we had the big flood, it only lasted for a week. And uh, Uncle Kev, who I'd go out with when he was a kid, they couldn't go to school for a couple of months because that creek was up. And so, you know, and, and so, you know, by talking to some of the elders and, and, and everybody, you, you start to get an understanding. So you've got to look at that historical context. And then, so then that started me thinking. And then, you know, I love my barramundi. And so I, I always, I always go back to barramundi. And I said to you that I like to use the animals as surrogates to tell us. And so the barramundi is a really, it's my favorite example of slow the flow. So, you know, traditionally, um, the barramundi would reproduce at the mouth of our estuaries um, and they need very specific uh, water quality conditions. So what they need is about one part fresh water and four parts salt water. That gives a density of the water so that the egg and the sperm of the barramundi, they don't sink and they don't float and they can, you know, magically touch up and make the little fella. So in my honours, I was trying to find the little barra. I was trying to be the first to find the little fellas. But now when we get a flood, instead of that happening at the mouth of the creek where when that egg and sperm meets, they can go into the seagrasses and they can go into the mangroves, now that's happening 60, 80 kilometres out to the reef. So, you know, that's when I say slow the flow, give back the barra her mojo. When you, when you look at it like that, you're like, well, okay, the barramundi's been here longer than anyone. So therefore, maybe our system should reflect, you know, how the barra likes to, you know, make love. And, um, you know, we all have our preferences um, and the barramundi has his. So, and that's just one. And, and if you think about the barramundi, it's the biggest, it's the strongest fish that we have. So if it's unable to, to be used to these velocities of water, what about our smaller species of native Australians? They, they don't stand a chance. Enjoying this episode? Subscribe to Seek University's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, rate, review, and share. So how do we slow the flow? Pretty straightforward. Um, you know, just think about your garden. If you had a garden and it didn't have any plants or grasses or anything in it and it, was, and it rained, of course a lot of your soil gets washed away. So what do you do? You, you, you level it out, you put some trees and you plant some more plants in. That way when the rain hits, it's able to penetrate. So what we do is, you, everybody knows China and you see rice paddies. That is an extreme, extreme version of slowing the flow. But what, what I picture is, you know, on, on the farms where we're getting a lot of this runoff, you sort of build in contours on the land. You plant those with native species that um, you know, koalas and that can use as habitat. So you're providing habitat, but then you're also slowing that water down and it's able then to penetrate into the soil. So that's one solution or one part of the solution. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word dam, but it, dams will be part of the solution. The issue that I have is no dam that is currently in existence is what we're thinking about. So we need our engineers here at CQU, and I've got two years, remember, experience in the engineering. They taught us in that first two years that there's an engineering solution for everything. The buggers are right. 
you know so i'll have to work with these guys and ideally we have um dam walls you know and if anybody out there has a better term for it i've thought of one a rose wall a, a reduction of of sediment erosion wall but that's that's a bit narcissistic so we won't do that <laughs> but you know the dam has to have the ability for that fish ladder so that you have the connectivity between the two water bodies so you're not disconnecting you're actually connecting the water bodies so when we get a flood now we get a flood for a couple of weeks and the fitzroy is basically like the german autobahn it is just going full ball so when we slow the flow we put contours in we put some rose walls in what will happen when we when it floods is it elongates that flood so it'll last longer the water velocities will be a lot less so instead of the fish having to swim up the german autobahn we're going to have all these back roads because they'll all connect again and they can then re-establish where they traditionally would have been but they now can't get there because the water's too fast and because the water's too fast it digs that fitzroy out and the more you dig the fitzroy out the faster it goes so until we slow the flow it's going to get worse so once we slow the flow it, that water can start to do the healing of what it's meant to do so an example that i use for the kids is you know the dishcloths uh, that you have that get all crusty and dry in the kitchen and you got to put the tap on and the water just runs off it yep. that's our soils now so what we're aiming to do is give life back to our soils and you know the new sponge that soaks that water straight up that's what our aim is so at the moment our soils are dead and compact they don't have any tree roots they don't have much grass roots or shrub roots in there their microbiome in there it's non-existent because there's no water so once we do all of this those soils will start to become the filters that they have been for millions of years again um, when we slow the flow there will be certain amounts of sediment that then build back up uh, near these dams but that water that that sediment's not meant to go to the reef so then we can go back in our engineers here can design some tools to get that sediment and put it then back onto the catchment where it should be as well so we're not losing that that asset mm. who's going to benefit from all this i mean surely oh, goodness how long do we have <laughs> i can see you know top of mind is is our farming communities farming communities um but it, like i said we all live around these these freshwater systems and now we've become used to the fitzroy and these other ones and we think that's what they're meant to be like and they're not so when these our our environment is healthy we as a community is healthy as well then but you know I'll, I'll, I'll tell you so if we slow the flow you'll have more water um, in the in the soils which then more carbon will be able to be locked into the soils so okay we can give the farmers some carbon credits give them some money then also we'll be planting more trees so our native species they win we can reconnect some of the lost forests um, so the, uh, the koala numbers can come back up if we've got trees and water in the catchment out west what happens is that that water vapor will transpire into the atmosphere so then here in rockhampton we will get more rain so by having more water spread out throughout the catchment we can actually change the microclimates of our catchments the nutrient won't run to the reef so then the reef won't um, have that algal build up and and whatnot I basically connect slow the flow to if you if to anything 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's water. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been um, working with farming communities and Indigenous um, elders as well on this project. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, yeah. So when I'm thinking of ideas, I've got to be careful to make sure I go and check on them to make sure I'm not uh, going too far away from reality, so to speak, um, and just keeping those doors open to, you know, none of us hold all of the knowledge. And the only way that we're ever going to get to the solutions is if we all come together and, and have the conversations around that. you got to listen to the people that have lived there for the longest because, you know, it's these old patterns because, you know, every 10 years. So a 20-year-old doesn't know what's going on. You've got to talk to the old guy that's been through the cycle a few times that, that knows what's going on. I know um, earlier in the year that you were blessed with the arrival of uh, your son, um, who came a little early yeah. and you had to spend a bit of time in hospital, but it gave birth to a new project. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, so slow the flow. I, I suppose I came up with the that concept during the PhD Um and as I was getting my um, corrections for my thesis done, um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to tell tell this story here, but I, I you know, it, I think it's an important story to tell. A lot of people don't talk about it. So I actually lost my first son last year, and my world ended. Um, but part of the rebuilding, I, I got to work on it, it, my research, and it, it gave that meaning. And so... With that, that sort of my professor from Ohio, Jim Kinder, he'd always send me poems and stuff. So in that time, then I wrote a poem to Jim over in as part of sort of a healing process. So Slow the Flow was a poem. And then this year, um, so that was after Kal-El had, had passed. Um, and, and this year, coronavirus and little Tommy decided, yeah, he wanted to come five weeks early. So we spent couple of months in Brisbane and then we spent 20 days in the hospital up here and I started you know every time I'd go out to get lunch there's those little people with the children's books in the stores and so here I am wasting all my money buying kids books and best investment ever and then I'm like well hang on we got a we got a poem here this this isn't a, this is a story this is a way better story than any of this other rubbish that I'm reading him like this you know it rhymes and it's science you know uh and so that's where it's sort of come. And, and uh, with Yvonne here today, she's been one of my biggest supporters for probably 15 years. And, you know, she, she's got 13 grandbabies. She's a beautiful, bloody artist. And so, you know, I can't draw. And so one night it was just like, damn, I think Bonnie would be perfect for this, you know. Um, she, because she's heard me trouting on about Slow the Flow for so long as well. Um, you know, to somebody that believes in that concept, but then also understands the reason to do a children's book. So for me, the children's book is a way of creating the new narrative because at the moment, all we hear about is, you know, the same thing over and over. No one's telling us anything different, like how to make things better. It's only, oh, things are worse, worse. Everything's getting worse. So bugger it. We're going to start with the kids. You know, I've, I've, I've got 30 years, and so I thought, you know, with everything that happened in the last few years, I had to slow my flow a bit. I was always in a rush trying to do things, and I'm going to solve this, and I'm going to solve that, but this problem isn't going to get solved overnight. 
So I thought, yeah, children's book, let's start the narrative. The kids will get the story. Mum and dad have to read them the story, so therefore mum and dad will understand the story. And I don't know, it just makes sense. Excellent. Yeah. I might just direct my question over to Yvonne now. You've worked with Adam for a while now. Yes, I have. <laughs> Yvonne helped. So she was. She helped me through undergraduate. She helped me through honours. She helped me through PhD. So, yeah, all, 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 all the way through. Yeah. So how did Adam come up to you and um, ask you to be the artist behind the book? I think he just rang me one not one day and said, I decided to do the poem with the into a children's book. Would you like to do the um, illustrations? And I thought, well, I liked what he was, like the concept and everything. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> What's your artistic background? I don't have any. <laughs> Oh, she's humble again. When I was younger, I used to draw. And then I had children. So I have six children of mine. So I didn't really have time to do that kind of stuff anymore. So I let it go. But a few years ago, I decided that I needed something to, as a stress release. So I decided that I would start painting. And then um, I painted a few pictures and I painted one for Adam. And um, I entered the CQU Creates one year and I think I got the People's Choice. It takes a long time to do it because I, not like most people, I use tiny dots and mm. I, I like tiny dots rather than big Dots, so yeah. just for our, our, our listeners, so it's it's it really is a, an Aboriginal, um, Indigenous f- oh, flavour, is it? Yeah, it is sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah with a bit of my touch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a, a single piece of work, um, how does that transfer into a book, where you have to do a number of smaller pieces, um, and matching words, obviously. With, good question. With Adams, his, each paragraph, you might as well say, tells a little story. So there's one there about the koalas in the tree and they're happy and because there's lots of water around and things like that. So they're, I've made them a bit plumpish yeah. and with smiley faces. Fat, happy koalas. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, you know, and they're sitting in the tree and they're quite content and happy. And the other one where when the it's sort of more droughty type, like less water around and everything. So they're going to be a bit thinner um, koalas and probably not so happy. Sad face, sad face. <laughs> yes. And same with the fish, you know, like here I've got a cross-section of a waterway and it's got less water in it so the fish in there are not happy. Yep. And I'll, I haven't sort of done the one with the with full water yet, but they'll probably be a bit happier. Yeah. Because <laughs> they've got more. I've got some ideas um, how to illust- like to fill in the illustrations. That it's um, it's it'll be a pro- it'll be a long process. Mm. So, how far do you think we are away from a finished book? Oh, you don't time these oh, things. Oh no, no, you don't. You don't put pressure on an artist. No, I've you don't. This, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a slow and, and, and again, <laughs> but, but I think slow the flow fits with so much other things in the modern context because we are, we're always in a hurry. Like I understand each of the concepts that he has in each of the paragraphs, so I'm trying to match the drawings to show that. So mm-hmm. koalas aren't going to be happy if they haven't got enough food. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> and the fish aren't going to be happy if they don't have enough water. Yeah, but I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm already, I've already got our next few, <laughs> few planned. Ooh. But we go, we'll finish this one first. So if there's anyone out there that wants to sponsor a children's book series, hey, just flick me an email. <laughs> <laughs> so where, Adam, where to from now... Well, today was the, 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 was the first time, I suppose, we publicly talk about it as a concept. So now I'll wait for the phone calls and the emails from people that are interested, that um, uh, see, are happy with the idea, that have concerns with sections of the idea, and we'll go from there. So for me, I want to do things like we learnt to in undergrad, where it's a collaborative, it's with everybody, and we all... because. Ultimately, we all benefit from a healthy waterway. So if we all are part of that conversation, it makes the decisions to do that easier. When you read a kid's book, you don't just read that book once. You read that book nearly every day. So the message is going to hopefully sink in. I didn't want to play necessarily with the politicians and the other scientists yet with this idea because there's, there's scientists down south that are telling governments to never build dams again because they will never fill up. In 2009, there was scientist, a scientist saying the Brisbane dams will never fill. And six mm-hmm. months later, they had the biggest flood ever. So that's the current narrative that is out there. And it's wrong. Um, so instead of arguing with people that know everything already, it's just let's just tell the kids and the parents and, and they'll sort it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little different tactic for a scientist, but it just that's and, excellent. Yeah, there uh, is an Aboriginal proverb that I read, and it says, "If you the water is healthy, the country is healthy. If the country is healthy, the people and culture will be healthy." So I thought that was that's very that, yeah, very fitting, very fitting. Uh, thanks, Adam and Yvonne, for joining me on um, the Impact Podcast today. It's been very insightful. Um, also great to hear how you've been working with the agricultural community and the Indigenous communities on this project. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Our pleasure. To find out more about how CQ University is changing lives through real-world research, check out our website in the description. And remember to subscribe to CQ University Podcasts so you don't miss an episode.